Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I'm Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. And today we'll be interviewing Professor Katie Milkman, who is the author of the book, How to Change, the host of the podcast, Choiceology, and a behavioral scientist at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So here's the interview. Welcome, Professor Milkman. It's great to have you here. So you are the author of the book, How to Change. You're also a host of a podcast, and you are a behavioral scientist at Wharton. So it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to your amazing show. Yeah, it's awesome. So basically, How to Change is about how to change your habits and be kind of a different, better person. And you talk about in your book common roadblocks that people might bump into, so to speak. So could you just kind of tell our audience who hasn't read this book yet about those roadblocks? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the key premise of the book is that one of the problems with the way most of us approach change when we, you know, have a goal we want to achieve and it's going to require us to break a bad habit or um, start something new, we often sort of just look for a one-size-fits-all solution, like set big goals, break them down, you know, form tiny habits. And a lot of those ideas are really compelling and some of them are effective, but you can actually do better and get farther if instead of taking sort of like an off-the-shelf one-size-fits-all solution or tactic, you you step back and learn a little bit about what is impeding progress. And it turns out there are different solutions that are effective depending on what the challenge is. So the book that I wrote tries to break that down um, into different categories. So the challenge can be procrastination. It can be that I don't enjoy doing the thing that is good for me or that I want to be doing. It's just incredibly unpleasant. And so I dread it and I put it off. It can be, I forget. I like just keep forgetting. I, you know, I keep forgetting to, to sign up for driver's ed or to, uh, to vote when I mean to vote or, you know, whatever it is, or to sign up for the, the SAT prep class. Um, so forgetting is a barrier. Um, inertia and sort of laziness going with the flow are peers and the influence that they exert on us can be a barrier to change when we're conforming with the behavior of our peers and it's not uh, it's not a behavior we want to be conforming with. And finally, another barrier I talk about in the book is just finding the right moment and the right motivation to begin, because that can be a challenge too. It's just the getting started hump. And so I break down all of those different chapters challenges in the book and talk about the scientific research and, you know, through stories and anecdotes, which make it fun to read because one of the barriers to change is it's not fun. So I had to make the book fun. Uh, But through, you know, stories about success, uh, both in organizations and individuals, I talk about what evidence says will help in each of these cases. And it turns out it depends. The best thing to do is different if your challenge is forgetfulness, if your challenge is bad habits or, or inertia, if your challenge is um, your your peers and peer effects, um, if the challenge is just getting started, if the challenge is confidence, you might not believe in yourself, have low confidence. So all of those different challenges, the best solution and the thing that's most likely to work is different. And, and that I think has been missing from sort of the popular self-help and even the scientific self-help um, section of the of the bookstore. And I'm trying to fix that because I think it can help people make a lot more progress if we give them solutions that are going to be suited to their problems. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, as you were saying, if you ever go to the self-help section of the bookstore or Amazon or any of the websites that sell books, you notice that it's a lot of like set big goals, as you said, Keep, do it every day, do a little bit every day. And that's all great advice, but it's different for each goal. Like that's maybe something very different for another goal. Maybe you don't want to do something versus you do want to do something. So those are two opposite things. If you use your brain, it actually makes sense that you would have different solutions. Although I think we kind of turn our brains off when we have, um, you know, just go to the self-help section. So I, yeah, that's I, I think that's I think that's right. And it's funny because I think there are places where we're really sophisticated about this. So uh, and and for some reason, we don't bring it to bear. And actually, my background is a little related to that. So I think it's part of why this is so natural for me to think this way. So I was trained as an engineer and. That's that's my background. My PhD and my undergraduate degree are both in engineering. And engineers are trained to think about the forces of opposition before trying to solve a problem. Like you have, you know, is there going to be wind opposition? You know, how, how will this bridge stand up to the forces of nature, the elements? And if you are thinking that way about problems, always figuring out what are the forces working against me so you can solve for them. I think that leads to this being a really natural approach. And it's sort of obvious you should do that. And, and yet it really hasn't been written about people again just sort of take off the shelf, like, let me set big goals. But what if that's not your problem? What if it's not, you know, is that really going to solve what is holding you back? Um, The other area where I think it comes up a lot is in sports. So I was a a tennis player, um, both in high school when I was your age. And when I was in college, I played a division one tennis and it was a huge part of my life and my identity. And in tennis, one of the biggest mistakes players make is to just ignore their opponent's strengths and weaknesses and focus solely on what they want to do and where they want to hit the ball. But you, you get much further in tennis and, and much more successful. And this is true in other sports, like in, in any sport where you have an opponent and you're facing off against an opponent, if you figure out what are their weaknesses and play to their weaknesses. And I think that that is also that mentality can really help in this setting. So there's some stories about tennis as well in the book, but recognizing it's a strategy that you need to develop and understand what is holding you back. Just like an opponent has weaknesses, you have weaknesses that are holding you back. But if you play a game that will strategically align to sort of Um, make sure you defeat those weaknesses, you'll get much farther. That's interesting. I also play tennis, so I completely get where you're going with that. And that's great because a lot of times you meet someone, you're like, oh, they have a great forehand, but their backhand, oh, that needs a little work. So you strategically start hitting the balls to that side of the court. So it's really cool that your book's more about like the tailored, um, kind of tailored reasons and how to change more for what you need, not just kind of a broad, like, oh, set this goal and do it. So I like that a lot. Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad it resonates. Yeah. So your book also mentions turning basically an uphill battle into a downhill battle. That's almost a direct quote from the description. Um, And could you just kind of explain that how instead of hiking up a mountain, you're sledding down in other words? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me give you a really specific example that might help illustrate of one particular sort of problem solution that can flip a a challenge and turn it into something that's actually um, an asset. So um, one challenge often we have with pursuing our goals, I even mentioned this a moment ago, is we just don't find it fun in the moment, right? So for instance, imagine you want to exercise regularly, but you dread your workouts, you know, hauling yourself to the gym to get on the the treadmill is just like, 
oh, misery. It's not fun. And by the way, I should say this is personal because I have I had that challenge. Well, how can you change things? Um, how can you flip that script? So I've done research on a strategy I call temptation bundling. That is a technique for basically turning something unpleasant, something you dread say a workout that you don't enjoy into something you really look forward to. So for me, what I did to convert my workouts was I uh, I stopped letting myself listen to tempting audio novels, which is the thing I was really into, like, you know, the Hunger Games trilogy, Da Vinci Code, you know, pick your pick your favorite cliffhangers. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that. I said, I'm not going to let myself unless I'm at the gym. You could do it with TV. i that's too much sensory input for me, input for me personally, but I know lots of people love, you know, Bridgerton or Game of Thrones, like whatever your favorite TV show is that ends with cliffhangers or 24. If you're old school, you only let yourself watch it while you're working out. And what that does is all of a sudden you start craving your workouts. You can't wait to find out what happens next in your book or in that TV show. You look forward to the gym. Not only that, time flies while you're exercising because you've combined this this joy with something that was a little bit unpleasant but you don't even notice anymore cuz the the time is now absorbed by the entertainment and you know that's one example but there's lots of places where we can do this we can link something that's tempting and alluring with something that we haven't been enjoying and make it more fun um some examples for for you like just to think about our you know a podcast for podcast listeners that you only let yourself listen to while you're catching up on household chores or um, a favorite restaurant that's maybe not super healthy, so you shouldn't be going all the time, but you only go when you're spending time catching up with a difficult relative who you should see more of. Um, You only let yourself pick up your favorite coffee drink that's loaded with some things that aren't so good for you when you're heading to the library to hit the books. These are all examples of ways you can use temptation bundling to turn something that might feel like a chore into a pleasure and something you look forward to. So it's no longer an uphill battle. And actually, um, so I did research showing that this can be an effective way if you give people audiobooks that they can only enjoy at the gym or even tell them to just try limiting listening to tempting audiobooks to the gym, that can increase people's exercise. There's also a wonderful study that I really like um, with high school students actually trying to make doing math worksheets more fun. And it sh- a lot of people were sort of skeptical at the school where they ran the experiment. They um, The teachers gave out markers, played music, gave out snacks during a worksheet session. And teachers were worried like that'll be distracting. But actually combining this sort of drudgery of doing these math worksheets with some fun accoutrements made it so that people persisted more and they did more of the work. And so I think there's a lot of ways we can uh, make things more fun. There's this insight that most people try to just do it. Sort of Nike says, just do it. But um that actually tends to be less effective than finding ways to choose something that will be enjoyable in the moment. So for instance, if you dread certain exercises at the, at the gym, but you think they're the most effective, you might choose to do those effective exercises, but then hate your workout. Um, an alternative would be choose a workout strategy you love. Maybe it's not going to burn quite as many calories, but you'll enjoy it. And then you're going to keep going. And that's true for many things in life. If we select a way to do something that's more fun, even if it's a little less effective, we'll engage more continually. So that's just one example from the book of a way that you can turn an uphill battle into a downhill one. Uh, instead of trying to force yourself to do something that isn't fun, um, turning it into something that actually is a pull and is a lure. But there are more examples throughout. That's just one. Interesting. So you kind of touched on this, but how do you think we can use temptation bundling and homework? 
Um, cause that's, that's something that I'm not fond of. So how do you think we can use that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, to the extent that you can find ways to do it, that it's not distracting this. I really do like the study that talked about, um, sort of what are some fun things that you can build into your environment? Can you find a fun place to work, a place that makes you feel cheerful and bright, whether it's your favorite room in your house, or it's like stepping outside or going to a park. Um, those, those kinds of things. So the environment is something that's rewarding, choosing a snack that isn't so unhealthy. It's terrible for you, but that is a, it's a treat. Um, if you are the kind of person who can study with music in the background, having music on that will bring you pleasure and a positive association. Uh, so all of those things, you know, there's some challenges if, if you can find ways to do it with friends and it isn't too distracting. Social is another way to make things rewarding. Exercising with friends is a form of temptation bundling and also creating accountability that can be effective. So there might be ways for certain kinds of homework assignments that you can build in a social element. Obviously, this is I'm sort of, you know, optimistically thinking about post-coronavirus or if you're in a family uh, or in a, in a pod and it's safe to do so. Well, I'm going to have to start doing those to make my homework more enjoyable. Um, so moving on to our last two questions. Uh, the first one is, what books have had an impact on you and why? Yeah, I love this question. It's a wonderful question. Um, the first book that had a huge impact on me that I want to mention is a book called Nudge. It was written by... Um, two other academics, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Uh, Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize um, and years later, roughly almost a decade after they published the book. And the book is all about structuring choices. And, and by the way, I should say it's a bestseller. It sort of sounds, I just said academics, it might sound like something you know, might want not want to read on the beach, but it's totally a beach read. It's about how the environments where we make choices shape our decisions, and so we should structure them wisely. So an example they give is a cafeteria. You walk into a cafeteria, whatever comes first in the line that somebody's just put at the front of the line in the cafeteria is the, much more likely to end up on your tray than the last thing you encounter, just because your tray's empty then, right? You I don't have to like go return it, and if it looks good, you take it, but the last thing you're going to have to put something back. So the person who designed that environment chose what to put where was a choice architect. Whether they realized it or not, their decisions about the layout were going to shape your own choices. And there are many settings when the way we write an email asking someone to do something, the way we structure a form or a process, um, the way we set up a room where we're having a class that shape the decisions we make. And that if we can be more thoughtful about that kind of structure, we can ensure that people make better choices. So I love that book. It's influenced my thinking immensely. It was really more about sort of government policy making, management. And my book focuses more on how individuals can change, although also how organizations can help them change. But the, my thinking about the importance of that architecture and solving for whatever problem was there was really influenced deeply by the book. Um, the other book I really love is Linda Babcock's book, Women Don't Ask, which is a fabulous book about the challenge um, of negotiating and the fact that it, it turns out women are much less likely to ask for things, to negotiate for a raise, um, to ask for a higher grade on a quiz when they've underperformed or, or, or excuse me, um, actually, well, one when they've underperformed, but then hopefully you don't ask for a higher grade because you don't deserve one. But uh, more, more importantly, and situations where um, they feel that a grade doesn't reflect their performance, there was some sort of mistake, women are less likely than men to go and ask and say, you know, I think this was graded incorrectly. I think my salary should be higher. Um, you know, I think that the uh, price you're offering me on this car that I'm trying to buy is too high and I'd like a lower price. We 
as women um, just generally ask less. So there's lots of research to support this, and it has really big consequences. And the book does a really nice job of illustrating how important it is to learn to speak up, that there can be backlash because women are expected to conform to certain gender roles. Uh, so it can be challenging to ask, but that there are ways to do it um, that won't generate backlash and will help you make sure you get a salary that's commensurate with your abilities and isn't lower than your male counterparts and get a better deal on a car or a house and so on. And I, I think it's a really wonderful book and an important read for young women uh, in particular. It really influenced me recognizing that even if it's a little uncomfortable, even if gender roles have made me feel I don't want to ask for things that it is really an important thing to do, um, both for myself and for all the people who will come in the next generation to normalize uh, asking and and to normalize that women should be able to be assertive and ask for the things they deserve. So that's the second book that I would highly recommend. Well, both of those books sound great. Uh, And I'm usually someone that reads fiction. So I actually have read a couple books that are kind of similar to the ones that you've talked about. And I think it's really fascinating when they're supported by like scientific research. And it's like, wow, so this is like proven to work. So both of those are awesome. And I'm really going to look forward to checking those out. I'm glad. And I should say, I love fiction too. But um, <laughs> in fact, okay, I'll. this is a random fun fact, but my first foray into research was an analysis, a quantitative analysis of fiction. I analyzed 10 years of New Yorker short stories to try to figure out whether or not authors wrote stories about characters who resembled them demographically and whether or not editorial changes at the magazine had changed the kinds of topics of fiction. And I did that because I had to write a senior thesis in college and I love fiction so much you can see temptation bundling. I wanted to find a way to make my thesis fun, but it had to be a, a thesis that involves statistical analysis because of the kind of engineering I was doing. So that is how I made my thesis really fun and it ended up actually, I think it's the most famous paper I've written, <laughs> but anyway, awesome. that's a separate story. That That, that is really awesome. Yeah, that, that really is really awesome. So something that I noticed from what you're talking about, you talked a lot about how environments can shape basically our basically what we want to do in our work environment. And we've talked about that a lot with Dr. Angela Duckworth and Dr. Shane O'Mara. I know Dr. Angela Duckworth wrote the foreword for your book, so that's really awesome. And then Dr. Shane O'Mara wrote a book on basically walking. So it was interesting how your environment can shape the world around you and how you basically do certain things. So I find that yeah. fascinating. Absolutely. And Angela is one of my closest collaborators and closest friends. We co-direct a center together at the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm so lucky that she wrote a wonderful uh, introduction to my book. She's shaped my thinking immensely. A lot of the stories in the book actually are about projects we've worked on together. She's a constant character. And I love her book, Grit, which if you had given me three, might have been my third pick. Uh, It's an amazing book about the power of um, passion and perseverance and and a lot of the same themes, right? Finding things you love is a way to cultivate grit because if you love what you're doing, if you're passionate about it, it's easier to persevere. So our final question is, what advice do you have for teenagers? It's such a great question. Um, I, I feel a little bit like a broken record because I'm I there's so many things in my book uh, that aren't related to fun, but uh, but I really do think one of the most important takeaways of all of my research 
and of the book. And be, and part of this is because it's a common challenge, right? We talked at the beginning about one size fits all solutions and it's hard and without knowing, it, you know, it's hard to give universal advice, but it's actually really rare that people won't benefit from making it more fun to pursue their goals. That's, that's a pretty, about as universal as they get. Um, so one piece of advice for young people is just in general, try to when you're choosing between extracurricular activities to invest in, when you're choosing classes, when you're thinking about what you want to do when you grow up, you know, try to find something that both has, you know, all of those benefits. Maybe if you're trying to figure out, you know, I want to get into a great college. I want to have a career that's has these features. That's important too. But make sure you will love the day-to-day because you can't succeed if you're not enjoying the pursuit of the goal. And so, you know, look for look for opportunities to do things that you really love. And and that's where you'll excel. Yeah, that's really awesome. We've talked about a number of different people's advice all throughout our show. And it's interesting. Your advice actually falls into one of the categories that we get often on the show. We've actually kept track of everything. So it's really interesting. So you have the people who recommend trying lots of things when you're young. So basically, so you have a very diverse portfolio of things that you've tried so that you kind of narrow it down to what you really like. And then also you have the people who are saying school's not the best part of life. There are things out of school that are way better. Then you have people who are saying, have fun, enjoy your teenage years because they're really fun and just enjoy life in general. So well, I found that you could, very fascinating. Maybe you could interpret it as actually a mix of all those three, because if what you love is school or some aspect of school, then... Um, I disagree a little bit with, you know, school, there's more to life than school. I mean, there is more to life than school, but it can be the thing you love. So that, I think that's important. And um, if you explore, you can find the things you love. So anyway, I think there's a lot of sort of overlap, as you said, in all of this advice. Um, Actually, let me give you one other funny piece of advice, which is, it turns out it really helps you to give other people advice. And this is actually research Angela and I did together. And it's something I talk about in the book in a chapter about um, confidence and how important it is to believe in yourself and find ways to make sure you believe in yourself. And it turns out mentoring and coaching other people and even just giving other people advice on how they can succeed at goals that you also have can help you. It builds your confidence. It also helps you think through the challenges more carefully and think about sort of solutions that are well mapped onto the problem. So uh, so think about ways you can coach others and help others, which I think the two of you, by the way, are doing on this podcast by asking these questions and sort of thinking through and synthesizing and, and then putting this out there. You are becoming experts and advisors and giving guidance to your peers, and that will boost your confidence in yourself and help you learn more. So I think you're already taking that advice, but um, advice giving is a power way to improve your outcomes. And I would encourage everybody to find ways they can mentor and coach in addition to looking for mentoring and coaching. Yeah, that's really great. It's funny because I feel like I know all this advice and Maddie and I in our discussion sections of our episode are always like, that's great advice. But then we're like, we don't actually have the life experience to back that up. So I'm just going to take your word for that. That's great advice with all of our guests. And I find that very funny. And that is interesting that there's research that shows giving advice show, um, basically improves your confidence. That makes sense if you think about it. So your confidence, your motivation and your performance. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It has been awesome having you on the show. It's been a real treat. I'm so impressed by what you two have created. Thank you for having me. This was really fun.
that was a really interesting interview. I loved learning how to change my habits and how to basically have an overall more healthy and productive life. What did you think, Maddie? I agree with you. It's She gave us some helpful study tips that I will definitely have to put into practice the next time I have a big final or something. Yeah, I know. It's It was really interesting how you have to associate positive things with, I guess, what you would also call negative. So like studying, if you're, if you're able to study with friends, which I cannot at all. If I there are people, yes, yeah, say, if there are people talkative. Room, yeah. If there are people in the room in general, I can't do anything really. <laughs> it's weird like that. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So you got to associate uh, bad stuff with positive things. So what did you think about her advice? Not just from her book, but from like what she answered to our last question. I really liked it. I like that she said, like, try to find something that you'll love day to day. Like, just like find a profession or something that you will kind of wake up and be like, oh, I'm glad I'm doing this. And not something like, ah, I hate this. But, um, and I like that she said it really helps to give advice to other people, which I don't think we've ever gotten that advice before. um, But I thought it was really interesting. I think maybe once we did, but that was one of our earliest interviews. I think it might've been Dr. Fitzell. I could be completely wrong about that, but I feel like there was something along those lines, but not exactly the same. I, I also thought that was interesting advice. Like it helps you kind of, what, what's the word, form your beliefs more yeah, to kind of understand what's important to you. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. There was someone, I can't remember who. Yeah. We kind of have terrible memories because when you've interviewed like over 50 people and they all answer the exact same question, it's really hard to keep track of it all. So I don't know. She has some email if we're right or if we're wrong. Cause I, I don't remember. Yeah. But we've been keeping track of all the advice and it's been really interesting. I've liked We that. have, we have, and I could, I could look, but yes. And that's why we keep track of it too, to reference it. But at the moment I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you should probably pull that up. Well, anyway, Maddie, what are our usual announcements? Well, check out our website at aimingforthemoon.com. We've got a blog, a contact page, profiles of our guests, et cetera, et cetera. So definitely go check us out there. We have our social media platforms, which we're on Instagram and Twitter at aiming for the number moon. And then we also have a YouTube aiming for the moon podcast. So go check us out on all of that. We'd love to hear from you. So yeah. Yeah, so I think that covers all of it. Don't forget to rate, review, and share it around. But right before we end, our quotes of the week slash episode. We still need a name for this. All right, so our quote is, quote, believe nothing you hear and only half that you see, end quote. This is from Edgar Allan Poe and his short story, The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. So thanks so much for joining us on Aiming for the Moon. Don't forget to share it around. Share it with your uncle you see once a year. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. And don't forget, set your sights high and aim for the moon.